Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, December the 8th, 2015. This is episode 1689 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. Today we're going to talk about becoming a new gun owner. Um, and I mean that as a person that's basically saying... I don't know anything about guns. I've never owned a gun. Maybe I've never even fired a gun. Uh, let's say the gun owner virgin type. And I've been amazed at how many people in this audience that that applies to. I've, I've been amazed at how many people have said, I'm now a gun owner because you kind of opened my eyes. I never thought I needed a gun. I never thought I wanted a gun. I grew up without guns, what have you. And I get emails all the time saying, I want to get a gun, but I'm, I'm really not sure what to do. And, and what I what I hear a lot of is fear, and, and and fear is a good thing when you don't know what the hell you're doing with something that can be dangerous. And I'm going to be flat out honest: the guns can be dangerous today. In fact, the guns are dangerous. Okay, but what you want to do is you want to replace fear with respect. And when we understand something, we have knowledge of something, we have procedures and protocols for something that we respect because it can be dangerous, we take away fear, and then it becomes a tool of empowerment. I will work with venomous reptiles, for instance, snakes. I will do so only with the proper tools in the proper situation within the boundaries of my capabilities. I am not afraid of a snake sitting over there on the ground that I can look at, determine is a venomous animal, and then use my knowledge to work with it because I know that if I follow my procedures and protocols and do the things that I was taught as a young child in dealing with animals like that, I am not going to get hurt. Okay? I'm not. Period. End of story. That animal's not going to bite me. I'm not going to get bit. Because the, the way that I will deal with that animal precludes the ability of that animal to bite me. Contrary to what you may believe, it can't jump up in the air, fly through the air, and bite you on the face from 20 feet away. It's not going to happen. And I won't get into how I can tell you that so assuredly, but I can tell you that. So I can also tell you that if I apply the same reasoning to a gun, which is an inanimate object, it does not think for itself, it doesn't ever behave unexpectedly, it always does what we expect it to do, and when it doesn't, it's always failures. If I apply that same logic from an informed standpoint to a gun, I still have to respect it. I respect that rattlesnake. If it bites me, I've got a real problem. Okay? But I don't fear it. That's what I want to bring to people for gun say. It's also going to be a show for those of you who are like, you're on board with this gun thing, but you have the reluctant spouse. And believe it or not, guys, it's not always the, the woman that's the reluctant spouse. It's also the man. I'm going to say that this would be a good show to let the reluctant spouse listen to, just like the show I did all the way back, episode 69, The Reluctant Spouse to Prepping. Skip all of this intro stuff and just ask them if they'll do this for you and listen to me. Let me do this for you. And don't stand there and look at them while they're listening. Don't go, ooh, ooh see what he said. Just let me do it. Okay? Because you are a prophet in your own country here and you have no honor. Okay? A prophet hath no honor in his own country. Right, So let me be the voice of this for you if you're trying to get over that hurdle as well. And I'll give you some advice for discussions as well with that. 
Uh, before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public Location at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber. They have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit. Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have three today from Alex Shrugged, and a couple little bullet points on the bottom called Fair is Fair. Uh, well, this is for the year 1689, because we're at episode 1689. I have the townspeople are Philistines. I have Husqvarna. For all your guns and garden needs, and I have the Bill of Rights. I'll read the Bill of Rights for you. The English Parliamentary Convention has decided to charge King James II, just a few weeks escaped to France, with violations of rights and liberties of the people of Great Britain. But someone has pointed out that one cannot charge the missing king with a violation of rights and liberties until the Parliament has defined what the rights and liberties the people have in the first place. They create a Bill of Rights based largely on the writings of John Locke. This is more than a simple listing of rights. They're establishing a constitutional monarchy, and the new king and queen, William and Mary, must swear a new oath to enforce and follow the laws of Parliament and follow the Anglican Church. So we have a monarchy, a republic, and a theocracy all thrown into one. What the heck could go wrong with that? Here's the Bill of Rights, though. 
Uh, some of the tenets of the Bill of Rights, or the summary of them are, the king must enforce and follow the laws of Parliament. The king cannot repeal a law without the consent of Parliament. The king cannot establish a Catholic Church or its institutions. The king cannot tax without consent of Parliament. The king cannot raise an army in peacetime without consent of Parliament. The king, the right of the king's subjects to bear arms. Huh, that fits with today, doesn't it? The right of free elections of Parliament. The right of freedom of speech within Parliament. The right to be free of abusive fines and cruel and unusual punishment. And the right to redress grievances. Okay, here's my deal on this. I want you to think about this. It sounds good. Remember we talked yesterday about things that sound good, sometimes being, ah! Okay, the king must enforce and follow the laws of parliament. Thereby, parliament empowers itself to create law and hold accountable the king to enforce. The word force. Remember, the only way you can enforce something is through the use of force. Okay? And the king cannot repeal a law without the consent of parliament. So parliament has a power to pass a law, maybe not so much a law to protect people, but to to grant power to the government. And even a benevolent king now cannot say, you know what, we're not going to do that. Interesting, isn't it? The king cannot establish a Catholic church or its institutions, so apparently it's okay for him to establish a Protestant one. So this is really not a, a separation of church and state. It's a marriage of church, a specific church to a specific type of state. Again, there's a level of theocracy going on here. The king cannot raise an army in peacetime without the consent of parliament. So what that means is the king can raise an army, obviously in time of war, but it can raise an army with the consent of parliament. So the parliament can ensure that soldiers are used to enforce its will even on their own subjects, because it's still a monarchy, right? So basically we have like the parliament becoming the lords, right? We even have a house of lords there today. Uh, the king's subjects can bear arms. This just seems like the one little balance point where the parliament says, maybe that'll keep us a little bit in control, right? But I, I think it could also be used more to keep the king under thumb, because if parliament can raise up its own rebellion against the king, it can stay in power, Uh, there's freedom of speech, but only within Parliament. So basically, this Bill of Rights seems to me to convey an awful lot of power to government and some freedoms and liberties to people. And then the, 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 the interesting thing here is that the Parliament is being called upon to define the rights of its citizens, to define versus to recognize See, that was the whole point of the United States and our form of constitutional government, that the rights and liberties of individuals were considered inherent to their existence, endowed by their creator. And one does not have to be religious to value that statement. If you believe in evolution, pure evolution, complete random chance, the universe just popped into existence out of nowhere, There is no spiritual component to anything whatsoever. You still are a product of creation. You are a creation of the product of evolution, and therefore that statement, endowed by your creator, applies to you equally to the person that is devoutly religious in their religious institution of choice. And that is how our institution of government was to be set up, to apply universally to all humans. But it didn't quite work out that way. Because every state wanted its own little power, its own little fiefdom, its own little bit of control. And there was all this residual crap, and the more things change, the more they stay the same. And sometimes, the more they revert to the way they are. And we can look at our modern government and see the intrusion upon the rights, even after they've been recognized as supposedly 
put down on pen and paper with recognition and the government being told you may not do these things, the government agreeing to the contract not to do these things, and then still turns around and does them. Anyway, my take by Jack Spirico. Next up, real quick, before we get into today's topic, let's take a look at the Bob Wells Plan of the Week. Short one for you this week, the Flavor King Pluot is adaptable from Zone 6 to 10, so that's a pretty big swath of the United States. So that's Pennsylvania all the way down to like South Florida. It's a cross between the plum and the apricot. It only requires 400 chill hours, ripens in late July. It has a sensational sweet flavor with a reddish-purple skin and crimson flesh. i got to tell you guys, I have some pluots and, and, and apricums and stuff like that on my property now. I, I wasn't really hip on this whole, like, you know, cross hybrid fruit thing at, at first. It just, I don't know. I didn't have anything up against it. This is not a GMO or something. Some people are freaks and think any crossing is a GMO. So your shepherd collie dog is a GMO, if that's the case. But it just didn't seem like, like, why? Why would we need to do that until I ate one? And it was a Flavor King pluot. It was the first pluot I ever ate. I was like, oh, oh. That's why, because they're freaking good. You might want to try these. You can get them at Bob Wells Nursery. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape plants and trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruits, nut trees, as well as hard to find, uh, especially trees. You can find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. Okay, with that, we are going to get into the main topic of today's show. That This is where I would say if you have a reluctant spouse or a spouse that's even just on the fence about you know guns and, and you want to become a gun owner, uh, or, you know, you want, you are a gun owner, but you want to start carrying with your permit and they don't want you to carry because, oh my God, why would people think or whatever? This would be about the point where I would go ahead and say, start listening from here. And, and what I want to start with today is that we need to understand what I was talking about in the preliminary part of the show, replacing fear with respect. All right. There is no doubt that a gun is a dangerous tool. Period. Not a dangerous tool in the wrong hands. It, in of itself, once loaded and capable of discharging a projectile in the form of a bullet, or in a shotgun in the case of a load of shot, is dangerous. There's no way around that. And when people say guns aren't dangerous, people are dangerous, no. Yes, a gun left to itself sitting on, on the ground, unloaded, will rust into oblivion and never harm a soul. But that's not what we do with guns. We take guns into our home. We, we use, And if we're going to want a gun, we don't want it to sit on the ground and rust. We want to maintain it. We want to shoot it. We want to put it into use. And especially if we're concerned about self-defense with a gun, well, then that gun is going to be loaded. It is going to be capable of being discharged. And therefore, it is inherently dangerous as soon as human hands touch it. Okay? It is. And when we, we make a, a argument with people who are afraid of guns, that guns just aren't dangerous at all, we don't get anywhere because we're not acknowledging the truth. So the gun is dangerous. I would tell you that a chainsaw is dangerous. A car is dangerous. Stairs are dangerous. They have different varying degrees of danger, but more people are, are injured by chainsaws probably every year than guns, especially if we take out people who commit suicide and gangbangers shooting each other and cops killing criminals. If you take those three out, the number of, of, of gunshot wounds in the United States dramatically goes down, and none of those should apply to you. Because by all means, if you're considering suicide, you shouldn't bring a gun in your home. 
I tell you right now, that's a bad idea. You should, but people generally find other ways to do this, whether it's through pills or jumping off a building. You, you need help. So, again, we remove those three and we start looking at other ways that people are injured and kill themselves cars, chainsaws, power tools. All those things are dangerous. So, if I want to cut down trees in my backyard on a piece of property that I own, The, the best tool to do that with is a chainsaw. Now, the chainsaw is inherently dangerous. It's a sharp chain spinning at many revolutions per minute, and if you've ever seen a wound inflicted by a chainsaw, it's horrific, especially if it's to the hands where it's close to the bone, the way it shatters bones. It's god-awful what a chainsaw does. My father-in-law cut two of his fingers off the top bar of a chainsaw by not respecting the tool, and not having procedure and protocol to follow at all times, i.e., two hands on the saw at all times until the chain is stopped moving completely. That is one protocol uh, and procedure for a chainsaw. Okay, And so if you had the need of a chainsaw, you wouldn't let your fear of that prevent you from getting a chainsaw. However, you wouldn't go out, Just go to Amazon.com, order a chainsaw, dump some fuel in it, and go out and start running it without getting some level of an education as to how that saw works. Most people would start out with a personal network. Do I know anybody that knows anything about chainsaws? And maybe before I even buy a chainsaw, they could bring their chainsaw over, show me how their chainsaw works, and teach me about operating a chainsaw safely. Because real quickly you'll learn, just like a gun, the danger of a chainsaw is not limited to the chain. Okay, because what people would say about a chainsaw is, well, the danger of a chainsaw is the length of your arm plus the length of the chainsaw. So you can hurt yourself with it or you can hurt anybody within. You stand up and turn a circle, that sphere that you can reach with the saw, that's pretty much where you can hurt somebody with a chainsaw. Not when you're cutting down a tree that weighs 12 tons. Now the area of danger from that chainsaw is the, is the height of that tree And the sphere that it can, the, the circle that it can fall within, even though you're trying to drop it on an area, if you get it wrong, it can fall the wrong way. Not only that, there's all kinds of things that can happen with that tree. When the tree falls, if you've done the cut wrong, you can actually have a piece of the tree come out and hit you in the face and kill you. Before you cut a tree down with a chainsaw, you, what you really need to do is clear two avenues of egress, two different ways that go in, in, in counter angles to the primary angle you're attempting to drop the tree. And when you look at a tree and say, that tree is beyond my ability, you get professional assistance. And, and, and this is just a chainsaw. When we look at a car, right, people say, well, you have to have a license to drive a car. The truth is the license that you get to drive a car isn't what ensures your ability to drive the car safely. It's practicing and learning how to drive a car with a teacher. The license is just a supposed test by the state that determines, yes, you've met that qualification. I don't know if you've looked at people around you driving cars, but I think that maybe we're not doing a good enough job as it is. And owning a car should also come with the ability to know how to put gas in your car, change your oil, change a flat, do basic maintenance on your vehicle, at least be able to know when maintenance is required for your vehicle and what that maintenance is to be able to talk to a mechanic who's going to work on your car and know that they're not lying to you so they don't take you for a ride. But nothing we do from a standpoint of providing somebody with a driver's license ensures any of that. And people that are responsible, competent drivers, that are respectful of others, that drive as safe as possible in an unsafe world, 
that know how to maintain their vehicles do not have any of that because they have a driver's license. They have all of that because they've been educated by someone that knows what the heck they're doing to properly operate and own and, and see to the maintenance, even if they don't do it themselves, of a vehicle. This is how a gun should work. And when you get in your car, in spite of the fact that tens of thousands of people die every year in a car, you generally don't sit there and cower in fear the entire time from you get in the vehicle till you get out of the vehicle because you've developed competency in the operation of a vehicle. And you've developed the ability to observe what's going on around you, anticipate dangers and threats from others, and take countermeasures. This is a perfect description of firearms ownership. Now, I don't even want to get into the whole thing, there should be a license to own a gun thing. First of all, there is not. Okay. Second of all, this is an inherent right, as we talked about in the introductory statement of the show today with the history segment. Our Constitution, according to recent Supreme Court decisions, even in the political climate that we're in, has stated the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution does apply to individuals. So whether or not you think that should be required, let's just put that on the shelf for this discussion because it's not. So then we have to say to ourselves, how do we defend our right to self-defense? Let me explain something about the right to own a gun. That's what it's inherently about. The right to keep and bear arms is, is an expression of the right to self-defense, that you own your body. Okay, It's your body. No one has a right to harm you or to compel you into a sexual act or to imprison you or to take you somewhere you don't want to go, or to remove your property unless there's due process of law. Okay, That's what that whole totality of that means. But it's for the militia. It doesn't matter how the right was justified. And by the way, our founders said repeatedly that the militia were the whole of the people. The fact that the people could be rose up to arms was what ensured the security of a free state. Okay? Not that there was certainly, you know, there were certainly militias that were organized, but the fact that the whole of the people had the right to arms ensured the security of the nation because it ensured the safety of the individual. And when individuals feel safe, they can go about doing great things. When individuals are in fear, they cannot. It's pretty easy to understand if you take away this fearful component of the gun itself. And you just think, take the gun out of this discussion and just think about that. If you live in fear, you can't do a really great job of being a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or a teacher or an employee or a boss because you're told, so worried about the thing that you fear. And armed people... That well-regulated means understanding the use of the arms, having respect but not fear, is an incredibly strong nation. We can look to Switzerland and see exactly what that means, in spite of a lot of things economically that make Switzerland unattractive in many ways. The, the, the wherewithal of the people, the lack of crime, is hugely based on the fact that every home in Switzerland pretty much has a gun in it, every single one. The violence problem in America is, is beyond firearms. There, there's way too much violence in America, period. 
And it has very little to do with guns. Guns are one tool that the violent use to commit violence on people that they perceive to be weaker than them. This is another thing we need to understand in, in, in defense of our right. That no criminal in general looks, whether they are a terrorist or somebody that wants to steal a purse and anything in between, says, you know what I want to do? I want to pick out someone that has a fair chance against me and have a fair fight with them. They look for a victim. The more people that are walking around that don't look like victims because they're not going to be one, the less activity like that we have. The less activity like that we have. And when it does happen, it's more likely to be put down. And you may very well need a gun to defend yourself. No matter what anybody tells you, no matter all of the hype in media saying, and one of the things I'll say today is just ignore the statistics arguments because I can make up statistics to say anything. Four out of all, four, four out of five people know that nine out of ten statistics are made up. Okay? Just to make a point. But the, the concept that you will never need a gun to defend yourself is, is illogical. Okay? It just doesn't make sense. Because what that says is there will never come a time where anyone will ever attempt to harm you in such a way that is a true threat to your safety, your property, and or the safety and the property of those that you love. That's what that means. When you say you'll never need a gun, that's what you're saying. There'll never come a time where anybody will ever seriously threaten your safety. This is an illogical argument because it happens to somebody every day. It happens to lots of somebodies every day. If that was the case, then we wouldn't need a police department. We wouldn't need law enforcement. We wouldn't need laws. We wouldn't need rules. We wouldn't need procedures inside of corporations to protect the security and safety of our people. There'd be no such thing as a security guard if there was no potential threat to your safety. Now, I understand what people really mean when they say that. What they're saying is there's actually low odds that you will ever need a gun to defend yourself or somebody else. It's more probable that you won't need it than you will. And this is where I'll be honest, where a lot of people on my side of this equation won't. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Unless we have some sort of armed rebellion in this country or some sort of uh, crazy uh, you know, nationwide riots or something, the odds that you personally will actually need your gun as an individual, are low. But it's also likely that if you're 30 years old, the odds that you'll drop over dead before you're 40 are really low. Most people in America that make it to 30, make it to 40. Even people in the poorest health you can imagine. People that are 500 pounds at 30 generally make it to 40. They may not make it to 50, but they make it to 40. If you are a male age 30 in this country... The medical establishment doesn't even really keep records on you till you hit 40 and start to fall apart. The, 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 the odds of you dying are so low. But if you're a smart, responsible adult with a family that you need to look after and you're 30 years old, you have life insurance. Okay? That's, 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 it's the truth. You have life insurance. Why? Because even though it's unlikely if it does happen... The consequences of not insuring your life to your survivors that you leave behind you are so negative that if you're responsible, you don't let it happen. 
And those of you that are the reluctant spouse here, I'd like to say, right now, how would you feel if your spouse came to you and said, I think this $150 we spend a year or $200 a year or $300 a year on life insurance is silly. I don't think either one of us are going to die anytime soon. Let's just cancel that. We'll probably never need it. Even if you at the surface thought, yeah, he's kind of right. If you actually thought about it deeply and thought about if something happens to me or him or her, what would the children and the surviving spouse do? You might feel that's very irresponsible. That's how I feel about gun ownership. from a, Just from a pure self-defense standpoint, because my guns, to me, are also tools for hunting. They are tools for recreation. Okay, They are tools to protect my livestock, which is something I've had to do. And most people that own livestock, sooner or later, you're going to have to defend your livestock from animals that will kill them. And you're not going to probably go out there and wrestle a coyote to the ground with your bare hands. It's probably not a good idea. So there are more reasons to own a gun than just that. But from a defensive standpoint, I feel that if you are if you are old enough, intelligent enough, have the financial means to purchase and the financial means to acquire training and the ability to acquire training, and you leave this gap of defense to your family, it is an irresponsible decision. Because just like life insurance... While it's unlikely, the consequences, should you be harmed and should your family be threatened, are so negative and so dire and so awful. And should you survive it, living with the decision to allow it to occur is something you don't want to go forward thinking about. When it comes to reaching your reluctant spouse, if you're not the reluctant spouse listening to this and you want to kind of do this thing yourself about reaching across the bridge. Here's some things to really think about. One of the first things I would suggest is go to a class on safety and shooting, both of you, and do this for me. When you get to the class, sit, stand, be as far apart from each other as possible, especially if one of you sort of knows what you're doing, or worse, if one of you actually is an expert. Men, it's fine for you to shoot with your wife and, and wives conversely the other way if your, your husband's the one that's unfamiliar but really the best person to train somebody with firearms is someone that's a third party because there's no stickiness in there there's no animosity neither side feels ridiculed when they're corrected where when your wife or your husband says you're doing that wrong your natural reaction is to say no I'm not owning weapons using weapons Having a loaded weapon in your hand, even for a five-second period, is a serious adult decision to make. Okay? It is. And I'm not, for minors, not being able to shoot guns either. I grew up hunting and fishing. And I grew up with firearms in my hand from the time I was 12 years old at the point where I could actually be away from an adult. And I don't know that I advise that today, but nothing bad came of it because I was properly trained. Okay, But when it comes down to it, the person that decides that a gun goes into the hand of a child is that person's parent under their supervision and the supervision of a third-party trainer, if possible. So this is an adult decision all around. And it is important when you make that decision, if you don't have mentorship from child coming up, that you are in the company of someone that can tell you what to do properly, that knows what the heck they're doing, and that when they tell you you're wrong, you believe it. So you remove 
all of that spousal animosity that's there, the most loving spouses have that. You know what I'm talking about if you're married or have a serious, committed relationship with a person. Okay, So you remove that. You let the third party do their job. Another thing I would say is we'll explain your view. And don't explain your view with, we need this because they're going to come get us or something stupid like that. The view for gun ownership in this country is it is a right inherent to us as individuals. It does see to our safety and security as, at a community level, a national level, and an individual level. And it is incumbent upon parents to defend their children and on spouses to defend each other. And I want to say this to you. I met a lady one time at a workshop, or actually a, like a seminar type thing. And we were talking about guns, and she was totally okay with guns. And we started talking about concealed carry, and she said, well, I don't carry, but my husband does. And I'm not going to judge that, but I, I wanted to know why. So I said, well, why is that the case? And she said, he's got my back. And I said, well, who has his? And she looked a little perplexed and said, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, you go to a restaurant, two guys walk in and start shooting. Now, if I'm going to execute that type of a mass shooting with a partner, then I'm going to make sure that we go in, we conceal what we're doing until we, we spread out. We're going to get a cross-sectional interlocking field of fire so that we each are covering each other. So that if somebody gets up with a gun and they start shooting at my partner, I can identify the threat and protect my partner so that we can either get away with it or kill as many as people as possible before we get out. This is the slightly tactically minded shooter. That's how they're going to operate. And yes, people like that exist. And yes, things like that have happened. So when your husband is defending you and everybody else in that building and no one else has decided to be armed and there's a second shooter who has his back, When your husband gets hit and goes down wounded and a guy comes over thinking he's got it made and he's going to kill somebody cowering on the ground, who's there to tell him otherwise? The answer should be you. We have a duty to defend our families as human beings, not as Americans under the Second Amendment. I believe as human beings, when we commit to being a member of a family by marrying or choosing to father or to be a mother to children, whether through natural birth or adoption. I don't care. The family unit is sacred, and we are to defend our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, and our children, our grandparents and our grandchildren. That is a sacred duty as a human being. That's my view. I don't know what your view is, but that's my view. And I realize that having a gun doesn't make me a tough guy. I realize that even though I'm a well-trained martial artist, that I'm getting older and slower. I'm blind in one eye. Put three people on me and I've got a problem. Okay, I don't carry a gun to be tough. I carry a gun because I know inherently, in many situations, I am weak. And the gun as a weapon is an equalizer. So that I can do my duty to defend others who are weaker than me when those that would do them harm choose to do them harm. And anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. I will take a well-trained 90-pound female into a firefight before I take a poorly trained Bubba with an AR-15 into a firefight. The gun is the equalizer. This is why it was seen as a inherent human right. Because it made the small equal to the tall. 
Because if you know how to use a weapon and you keep that weapon specifically not visible until such time as it's necessary, that your opponent will often overestimate their ability to do you harm. This is why as much as I'm happy about some of the open carry legislation that's passed recently, in the end I think the concealed carry is far more effective. Because when someone walks in that would want to rob a place, steal people, just hurt people, whatever it is, they inherently know there's no way to know who in here has a gun. Where if everybody has to open carry, I can identify, is there anybody here that has a gun? If there is, I'll just take them out first. But we have a duty to defend the weak. If you're a mother, you have a duty to defend your children. And I, I guarantee you, no matter how resistant to a gun a person is, there's not a woman that's a good mother that would deny that, that you have a, a duty to defend your children. Well, guess what, ladies? If it's me and a guy my size that has my ability and I want to hurt you and your kids and you ain't got a gun, there's not a damn thing you can do. There's not a I wouldn't do it. Don't get me wrong. But there's nothing the average woman can do, a guy my size, my ability, if I physically decide to do you harm. And then I can hurt your kid right in front of you, and sick people do this. And you know what will change it? A hole, a hole in my head or my chest will change that equation that fast. And all you have to do is decide that you are good enough, smart enough, and intelligent enough to be worthy of the responsibility that you've been given to defend your family, and that you are intelligent enough to learn how to properly operate a tool. Because that's all a gun is. That's my view. Ignore statistics. They're pointless. I don't want to hear you're eight times as likely to kill yourself with your gun. If you're suicidal, if you're suicidal, and you know what? Women don't shoot themselves in general. Because women think differently than men. This is a this is a thing that's really interesting to me. If a guy wants to kill himself and he has a gun, he'll probably put his mouth and blow the back of his head off. And there's probably not much you can do to prevent him from killing himself, but he would use that tool if it was available. A woman won't. And do you know the main reason women who actually tried to kill themselves, not people that took like three pills and said they tried to kill themselves, but women that like tried to kill themselves and medically they were able to bring this woman back to life and, and, and get her some therapy and get her going, like, and they had access to a firearm and they said, why didn't you use a firearm? Because people, like psychologists that want to help people want to know what, what's the thinking. Because they didn't want to leave a mess for somebody to clean up. So when, you, when, you, when you're talking to women and, and you, you feel like there's an illogical thing going on, it's not illogical most of the time. What it is is a different way of thinking. The old book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. It, it, it's a different way of thinking. And, and statistics, what statistics do is they just slant an argument toward whoever's giving you the statistics. And, and that, doesn't, that doesn't meet in the middle. That doesn't, that doesn't take the two sides that don't understand each other and help them understand each other. And, and they're largely irrelevant. They're largely irrelevant. And at some point, you're not going to like this. Those of you that have a reluctant spouse, whether they be male or female on the other side of it, man the F up or woman, woman the F up. Seriously, you're, you're charged with defending your family, period. And that means you might have to do things your family doesn't want you to do. But you're going to do it, because it's the right thing to do. And 
you know, this this idea that you know you're not likely to have to use a gun to defend others or yourself. Okay, just recently, like a day after the San Bernardino shootings, which wouldn't have been great. Wouldn't it have been great if 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 the the man that was a prior military serviceman that when the shooting started laid his body on top of a woman, shielded her with his body, and died and she lived? Wouldn't it have been great if that man pulled a sidearm instead, used his inherent training and ability, and took out the threat and stopped it there? Wouldn't that have been better? than laying down his life with no means of defense. Wouldn't that have been better? But no, that workplace had decided amongst its own people to be a gun-free zone. And the person with the gun did not care. And nothing was able to stop that. And that doesn't mean if that man was armed, he would have been successful. But it does mean the opportunity for success would have existed. Instead, the only opportunity was to be noble, so noble, that he took a woman that was the closest person to him into his arms, covered her with his body, and gave his life in her defense. That alone should break through all of the stuff about I'll never need a gun. Right there. Because that happened. That happened. Let's not even get into legal things. Well, they took away the guns. France has the most strict gun laws in the world. Damn near, anyway. They just had massive shootings over there. Evil people will arm themselves. And the best thing in the world for them is for innocent people, good people, to be disarmed. But what else? I mean, well, just a day after that, an Uber driver in Chicago witnessed a man pull a gun and attempt a mass shooting. You've probably not even heard about this. There's a link in today's show notes. He pulled his gun. He shot the individual three times, didn't kill him, and that's good because now this man, who is a hero, doesn't have to live with having taken a life. But he was able to stop the attack. The only person injured was the shooter. So there's one, and that just happened. That happened a day after a mass shooting, and you heard not a peep about it. Unless you saw it in a feed on Facebook or something. Years ago, in Colorado, most famously known for the Columbine shootings, An assistant principal saw a young man with a gun that came into a, shoot, a school to do a school shooting. He ran to his vehicle where he had a .45 store, stored, ran back into the school, and before the kid could hurt anybody, put his .45 to the kid's head, put him on the ground, stood on his neck, took his gun away, and saved the students of that school with a gun. And you heard nothing about it. I have another article in the links today. Twelve times armed citizens stopped mass shootings. Because you don't hear about it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It doesn't fit with the agenda that the media have. The agenda of the media is to make people afraid of guns rather than to respect guns. Because when you respect something, not only do you respect how it's dangerous, you respect how it is beneficial. It's a balanced view. And we should have a balanced view of all things. So I just want to say any of this crap about you'll never need a gun is just that. It's crap. It's absolute, illogical BS. It's not that you may definitely need a gun. It's that the possibility exists where it is the only thing that will save you and others. And if you think, well, not me. I also remember sitting down 
listening to one of those daytime talk shows. I think it was Oprah Winfrey. I'm not sure if I remember that right or not. My wife was watching it. I work from home, so occasionally she's watching something like that, and I'll see what's going on. There was an 83-year-old black lady talking about how she was accosted in her home. A man came through the front door into her kitchen and attempted to rape her on the floor of her kitchen. She was 83 years old. And let me just put it this way. I don't mean anything insulting, but some people age really gracefully, and some people don't, and you guys know what I mean. And she was one of the ones that didn't. Wonderful woman, by the way. But just, like, this is not a person you'd look at and say, that's what a man that wants to rape somebody's going to go do. Rape is not about the fact that the girl wore a shirt, short skirt and looked pretty. Rape is a crime of violence. Rape is a crime of domination. If a man will go try to rape that woman, a man will try to rape you, ladies. Period. That doesn't mean every, and I don't mean walking around in fear, paranoid. But it does mean the concept that, oh, not me, not here, not in my neighborhood, is all nonsense. There are good people that are the vast majority of society. And about 10% fall into scumbag. And that scumbag 10% exists everywhere. And it's only fear that makes them not show themselves. It's fear that someone's stronger than them. It's fear that they'll be incarcerated. It's fear that they'll pick the wrong woman who will put a hole in their head. Or in the case of this lady, let me tell you how this ended, since it did end happily. Um, though this is not always an opportunity. She feigned compliance. She grabbed a hold of one thing in one hand and two things in another that only men have, both of them, both sides, right? Twisted one in one direction, twisted another in the other direction, and began to pull vigorously in both opposite directions. Got it? And apparently this was like a lady that made bread every day of her life or whatever and was pretty strong-handed. And the guy ended up begging her to call the police, begging her to let him go, saying he was going to die. And she told him, well, just go ahead and die. And when she finally did let him go, he crawled out of her kitchen, rolled down her stairs. And when the police got there, they found him about 25 feet away in the bushes in a fetal position, sobbing like a child. That's a good ending. It also could have been a much more horrific ending. In the end, she was able to do what she did because he thought he had a weak victim. She played on his belief that her weakness was inherently real. And then she capitalized on a strength. And she capitalized on the stupidity of her attacker. Let me tell you something. Not all attackers are stupid. Not all attackers are stupid. Um... So if you want to get started, I say the first step, get training. Before you buy a gun, get some training. Go to a class. Just call around. Look on Craigslist. Call some local gun stores and stuff. Say, I want to take a class. I want to take a basic safety and use class. And, and tell the instructor, I don't own a gun yet. I feel that I, since I've never owned a gun, since I have no training, I should take your class first before I become a gun owner. That instructor is going to go, yes. That's why we do what we do. That's exactly why people that dedicate part of their life to training others to use weapons responsibly do it because of people like you. You will make that guy or that gal's day, and there are some great women trainers out there. Go get training. Find mentors in addition to that. You can't spend money all the time taking class after class after class, and in the end, firearms training kind of goes through phases and layers 
And most of us don't need the type of training you get a place like Frontside or something like, you know, tactical carbine training or something like that. Force on force engagements. Those are things that if you want to do that, that's fine. But it's not necessary to be a responsible gun owner to know how to handle your weapon, to know how to deal with situations. So you take classes, and in classes they not only train you, but they train you to train yourself how to deal with malfunctions, how to be safe, etc. Then you need to uh, find mentors, find people in your area that shoot, that are responsible, and go shooting with them and learn from them and let them teach you. Go shoot rented guns before you spend money. Guns are expensive. They're investments. They're good investments, but they're, they cost a lot of money. And you don't usually get what you pay for one if you sell it secondhand. You know, over time, some guns actually become worth more money. But in the end, generally, if you buy a gun, decide you don't like it, and go to sell it, you lose a hundred bucks or so. So go out and, and, and go to a range, and most ranges will have a whole list of firearms that they rent. Rent them, shoot them, become familiar with them, learn what works for you, learn what fits, what carries well. Okay. Um, In general, start with long guns, I also say. I think it makes a lot, like everybody wants to go get a handgun, because that's what you want to carry for defense. Just from a practicality standpoint, you can't walk around with an AR on your back in a practical way, day-to-day -day in life. Whether you're open or concealed carrying, the handgun is the, the best choice for that type of a defensive situation. But handguns in the hands of a person who has never shot, who is unsure about what they're doing, And in working with a coach for the first time, because of the shorter barrel, have a greater propensity for you to do something called muzzling. Muzzling is, you, you, you need to think in your mind when you have a gun in your hand, is you need to pretend there's a laser beam coming out of that barrel right now. And it's like a lightsaber. If it goes across somebody, it's going to slice their arm off, burn a hole in their head. And no matter what you do, no matter how you manipulate that gun, no matter how many people are around you, no matter how sure you are the gun's unloaded, this is one of the procedures, okay? The gun barrel never involves the laser crossing anyone. And if you find good mentors, and you do it even with an unloaded gun or a plastic fake gun, and you muzzle somebody, it's like, whoa, 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 no, no. No, you don't do that. People actually are offended that that occurred. And that's a good thing. That's how we learn. That's how we learn to be safe. Because what we know is with just that proper muzzle discipline, we've eliminated the ability of the weapon to harm anybody that's innocent. The first rule, never point a gun at anything you don't intend to destroy. Well, that means don't muzzle your buddy when you're dropping your magazine. That one rule, if followed to the letter and never violated We'll ensure that no one's ever hurt with a gun. Now, it's easier said than done. That's why you need training. Okay. Also learn gun functionality. Okay. Um, and, and in spite of starting with long guns, I'm talking about like, like one of the great things you can do to just get familiar with guns and, and, and feel relatively safe right away, you know, go skeet shooting or go do sporting clays where you're shooting at clay targets with a shotgun. You know, it's fun. It's engaging. You start to learn gun functionality and things like that. But very quickly, yes, it, it, for defensive purposes, it's the handguns. So you want to take a good handgun class. You want to go out and rent some handguns with a qualified person there with you to make sure you're being safe. You need to shoot. You need to follow the rules of the range, etc., and find something that works for you and go on from there. Get your carry permit or what have you, depending on your state and your regulations. Know your laws, cold man. 
in your state. And if you leave your state and go to another state, do not assume that that state has the same laws. There are people in prison in New Jersey right now for felony violations simply because they had a loaded gun in their vehicle because where they lived, it was totally acceptable. They were driving through New Jersey. They didn't know about New Jersey's draconian gun laws. They got pulled over. Cops says, do you have a gun in your vehicle or a weapon in your vehicle? And they say, sure I do. Oh, really? Where is it? Here it is. Not locked in a case and unloaded in the trunk and you're not traveling through. Oh, that's a felony. You're, You're hooked up in handcuffs and going to jail. No, your law's cold. You're in more danger. I mean, if you want to know the truth as a gun owner, you're in more danger of actually, you know, accidentally violating law, especially out of state, than you are of having that gun harm somebody or yourself unintentionally. Seriously. So make sure you know those as well. But the functionality thing is really important. And what I mean by that is I don't consider myself a firearms expert. I really don't. But if you hand me a gun that I've never seen before, As soon as I look at it, I'm going to go, okay, this is a semi-automatic handgun, this is a revolver, this is a bolt-action rifle, this is a semi-automatic rifle, I'm going to, um, this is a break-action shotgun, I'm going to know what it is. And then there's only so many ways that that particular, as we call it, action can function. If it's a, if it's a break-action shotgun, whether it's double or single-barreled shotgun, it's going to have some sort of a release somewhere that's going to allow it to break open so it can be loaded. It's going to close. If it's hammerless... That's probably going to have cocked it so it can be fired. If it's got hammers, they're going to have to be pulled back to cock it. I know that about that particular gun. A semi-automatic handgun is going to have some sort of a magazine that holds the cartridges that feeds them into the barrel. When it's fired, it's going to cycle and, and bring another round in. It's going to be either double or single action, uh, and, and I need to know that, and I can figure that out pretty quick. There's going to be a way to release the magazine And pretty much people that are familiar with firearms, you can hand them a, a model of weapon that they've never seen before, and in a couple seconds they know exactly how that weapon functions and they can put it into operation. This is one of those things that seems complicated, that, that the novices and newbies think, wow, it's not. It's, it's, it's a simple set of rules that once you know it, you can't forget it. It's actually easier than riding a bicycle. But it, it comes from losing the fear, replacing it respect, putting your hands on weapons and understanding how they function. You know, it, it is really what there is to it. Learn maintenance. Remember I said about cars, one of the big holes in how we license drivers today is that we may make sure they can at least move forward and backward with their vehicle and not hit anybody. And because parents complained about too many failures, most states don't require parallel parking anymore. But at least we make sure a kid can park in a parking spot or make a three-point turn, change lanes, make a left, make a right, use their turn signal, stop the car without putting somebody into the winch. You know, we do make things sure they can basically operate a vehicle before the disgruntled DMV person signs off and you, they get their permanent license and can go off and drive a car now. But we don't, we don't put any effort into determining whether or not a person can operate a vehicle into do they don't know how to maintain the vehicle properly. A poorly maintained vehicle is dangerous, and a once-a-year inspection doesn't make sure that that's not a problem. A, a person with a vehicle that has bad belts on it that are about to break can be driving somewhere where there's not a lot of people to help them, and pop the belt comes off, and they're stranded on the side of the road. That can be a dangerous situation. We don't even think about that. An airbag can't fix that, right? 
insurance is, I mean, roadside assistance might help, but insurance isn't fixing that. And roadside assistance is only as good as as long as it takes to get there. And I've been on the side of the road for two hours before waiting on roadside assistance. And it, it's predicated on the ability of you to actually make a phone call where you are. So just that one maintenance issue alone, not knowing how to look at the belts in a vehicle and go, you know what, they're getting dry rotted and they really should be replaced. Right, and, and abjecating that to your service department, like whenever you get your oil changed, you think they're going to check that? The diligent will, but not everybody. Well, you need to know how to do that. right? If your vehicle's running a little bit off, understanding that's probably something to do with the fuel filter system or something, and knowing, okay, I need to go get this looked at, right? you need to be familiar with the basic maintenance of your, of your vehicle to operate it safely. If you, if you let problems occur with your brakes, you could get in a wreck and kill somebody with your vehicle because you haven't seen to its maintenance. We have to look at guns the same way. And far more, as I said, when guns malfunction, it's almost never that they discharge accidentally. That almost never happens. I don't care what you've seen on TV. I don't care that you see Jamie Lee Curtis drop the Mac-10 down the stairs in, in that, that stupid movie and it fires all the way down the stairs and kills the bad guys. I don't care that you've seen that. It doesn't work and Mythbusters proved it. 99 of 100 malfunctions of firearms are their failure to fire or failure to feed or failure to advance, okay? In other words, you shoot it and it either doesn't go off or it does go off and the second shot can't be made. If you're ever in a situation where someone's trying to hurt you or other people and that happens to your weapon, you are in greater danger because now the person that you are returning fire against knows you are a threat and has singled you out. Okay, so that alone is dangerous. So we need to learn that maintenance of that gun. So that's, that's a big part of our whole development. And I could go into a lot of other things that make maintenance key and important and imperative, but just understand that's how it works. And then you need to develop protocols and procedures. Procedures are how you do things, and protocols are what you do in certain situations. So a procedure might be that every time I pick my weapon up, I clear it and make sure it's unloaded, or if it's to be loaded, to make sure it's loaded properly in the condition that I want it to be in, depending on the action and what have you. There's a certain way that I holster or unholster a weapon. Okay, A protocol is, unless I'm going somewhere where I'm not permitted to carry, when I leave the home, I carry my gun. That's a protocol. And a procedure is how I do things within the protocol. And you need to develop those. And I could do a whole show just on procedures and protocols that apply to far more than just guns. But that is the proper mindset to be in. So that means that there's a protocol when I'm walking down the road and all of a sudden I feel a threat. And it isn't I pull my gun out and go, who's there? That's dumb. Okay. But there's a protocol that I go into. Generally, I walk around. I'm happy-go-lucky. I have my situational awareness up. But I'm not sitting there kind of all paranoid. Uh, I'm going on about my life. I'm watching the kids play on the steps or whatever, or on the uh, swings, whatever it is I'm doing. But when you feel a threat, when you're in a situation where you just know things aren't right, there should be a certain protocol. And the basic protocol should be get the hell out of there. Leave the most direct route without looking like you're running or afraid. And take whoever's there with you. If there's a person that appears threatening, notify authority. There's this thing going on. Be in that heightened set of awareness and don't look like a victim. If you initiate that protocol, you'll probably never have to pull your gun. But it's there. So another thing is, during that time, think about where your weapon is. Think about your ability to draw that weapon. 
Think about what is the point at which you do draw and which is the point you remain with that weapon concealed. And, and again, we could go on and on and on from there, but that's, that's the basics. As for a basic like gun collection, a gun battery, this is what I say that everybody in America, once you've got the knowledge and a little bit of training, should own as a gun owner in America. A .22 rifle, a centerfire rifle, a .22 handgun, a centerfire handgun, a shotgun, and whatever else you want and can afford. But those are my core, right? And here's my rationale behind that. .22 rifles are great for practice. They have a lot of utility. They can be used for pest control. They can be used for hunting. And up until recently, they were the most affordable thing you could ever own to shoot. And they're still not that bad if you pick and choose the moments that you buy ammunition. It's all dried up again. Thank you, number one gun salesman in America, President Barack Obama. This guy sold more guns than anybody else in America ever. And, and my show today is to help him make sure that he holds that title long after he leaves office. I want more new gun owners. I want people making that call to trainers saying, I don't own a gun yet. I need to rent a gun or borrow a gun for class because I want to have training before I can't become a gun owner. And I want to hear from gun trainers that have that happen to them. I, 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 want, I want that little celebration to happen over and over again. Because that's how we defend this nation. That's how we defend our families. That's how we reinstore a culture of, of self-reliance in our people. And that's what I want. With, with the 22, we get that. We get, and we get the ability to shoot it in places where it's legal to discharge a firearm, but it might otherwise upset people. It's too loud. It's too noisy because it's quiet. It doesn't need much of a backstop. And if you can hit something properly with a 22, you can hit it with anything. Okay. 22 handgun, same thing. Now I have a training tool uh, for my handgun. I think it makes a lot of sense to try to own a 22 handgun that's at least similar to your centerfire handgun. And for those that are talking about novices today, and here I go using terms like this, centerfire is your larger caliber than 22 generally. Okay, You always hear people say it's a high power, high caliber. Just ignore all that stuff on TV. Those people using those words don't have any idea what they're talking about. We're not going to get into a whole show on gun and ballistics uh, definitions today. But centerfire rifles generally are your rifles that would be used to hunt something like deer or used in self-defense situations. And your 22 rimfires are more of your small game and plinking and practicing. Because they're a very small round, they are still dangerous. They can still kill you, okay? I'll be honest. I'm not going to say that guns aren't dangerous. Because when guns are improperly used, they're very dangerous. And therefore, the gun is the thing that makes the fool dangerous in that situation, okay? But they are a smaller firearm. Just leave it at that, again, because I'm talking to the novices today, mostly. So I have two of these quiet inexpensive, low-recoiling, easy-to-train-and-learn-with guns, and I have counterparts to them that can step up from there. And the centerfire handgun is your primary tool of defense. This is where you need to be looking at calibers like, minimum, I'm going to say 380, and I'm not real comfortable with that, but I'm okay with it. Uh, 9mm, uh, 40 Smith & Wesson, 45, those are your primary calibers. You're not getting into all this nomenclature, but things like that. You could do worse then a revolver, a, a small frame, easy to carry revolver in 38 or 357 Magnum. But we're talking about larger rounds that are capable of doing greater damage. Because if we have somebody trying to kill us, we want to be able to stop the threat 
as, as quickly as possible. Shotguns are the most versatile tool you'll ever own, and rifles and shotguns are good defensive tools in home situations. If I'm at home and I think somebody's trying to get into my house, I'm probably going to grab my shotgun before my sidearm. It's more effective. It's more lethal, to be bluntly honest. And it's also more intimidating. It's absolutely more intimidating. If somebody kicks a door down and there's a guy with a 12-gauge on the other side of it, if, if the person coming in doesn't, it, I don't care if they're armed, if they don't have their gun in their hands, they're probably hitting the dirt pretty fast. And I don't want to kill someone. I don't ever want to shoot somebody, ever in my life. But if I have to, I'm willing to defend my home and my family, and I'm not going to have somebody kill me and rape my wife. Period. End of story. And I want to apologize for that. And, and I'm trying to infuse a little bit of that in you guys that are res resistant to this idea. Are you going to let that happen? Women, are you going to let somebody break into your home when your husband's not there to defend you? Beat the piss out of you, to be honest, and rape your daughter in front of you. Because there's people who will do it. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to put you in touch with reality. That's the decision to not be armed. So shotguns, rifles, they work well for that. But handguns often have situations, even in home defense situations, where they're ideal. I want to talk a little bit about, but I have kids. I have kids. Okay, lock your guns up, and your kids cannot access a gun that's on your body. Carry in the home, on your body, concealed. Especially once you have your concealed carry permit. It makes no sense to walk all around society armed, come home and take your gun off and put it in a safe. Okay? If you have a protocol and procedure, you can take your gun off your body at night and put it somewhere readily accessible, not in a safe, and loaded and ready to go, and as long as you're there, your kid ain't getting it. And that means when you get up, you have to have enough discipline to then take that gun and put it back on your body, or lock it up, or take it with you where you go, and make sure your kid can't get to it while you're doing the three S's. Okay? But this idea that I'm going to own guns, but I'm going to keep them all locked up in a safe in a closet of stairs is dumb. They do you no good when somebody breaks in your house. They're not going to wait for you to go get that gun. I am not at all for leaving guns, loaded or otherwise, freely accessible in a home with children in it. I am not. But everything locked up in a safe doesn't work either. We have to balance safety with being practical. And again, the number one way to make sure that no child or person that should not puts their hands on your weapon, is it for it to be secured on your body and concealed? Because if that's the case, they ain't touching it. It is that simple. I also think it makes a lot of sense to use Airsoft as a training tool. I actually, at some level, prefer it to 22s today. Because so many people don't live in areas where you can even discharge a 22. And there's Airsoft guns of all types and shapes. Basically, this is like a BB gun that shoots a plastic BB. They're not a toy. They can hurt if they shoot somebody. They're not going to kill somebody. They can put an eye out. People shoot each other with them all the time in games, airsoft games, where you have rules of engagement. You can only be so close with certain things, and you have to wear eye protection and whatever. But in a backyard with targets, they are a great tool. I have a airsoft gun that is a 1911 clone. I carry a 1911-45 as my primary carry weapon. And that gun feels like, weighs like, functions exactly like, in almost every way, my actual 1911. It fits in the same holsters. 
So I can put a holster on, I can holster up, I can go outside, I can set up situations, I can take that, that gun, I can use it, I can shoot it over and over again. It charges up with either something called green gas or propane, which is dirt cheap, with a little needle that goes on top of a propane bottle, and you put a little bit of lubricant in it, and you charge up the cartridge, and you can load it, and you can have multiple cartridges, and you can reload, you can practice all your drills, you can practice malfunction drills, and it's dirt cheap to shoot. The BBs that you buy are biodegradable, so that means that over time they just disappear into the environment and they hurt nothing. Uh, if, if somebody does call the police, says, hey, this guy's over here shooting a gun, the police come out, I can cooperate with the law enforcement and say, hey, look, this is what I'm shooting. It's an airsoft gun. And unless you live in a place where they've passed some kind of stupid law about that, you're good to go. You're clean. And talk to your neighbors. Hey, this is an airsoft gun. I don't want you to be alarmed. It can't hurt you. Look, I'll shoot the fence. There, see that? It doesn't hurt. It's not gonna, it's not gonna kill somebody. Right? It'd be a little bit nicer, a little bit more diplomatic. But if you live in a place where you're in them small suburban areas and you want to practice outdoors with an airsoft gun, talk to at least your immediate neighbors. This is what I'm gonna be doing. Come on over and do it with me. It's fun. It's completely harmless. Do you own a gun? Nothing you need to know about. This is an airsoft gun. That's all we're talking about right now. Okay? Um, and then there might be places where even that just doesn't work. Your RT, if you live in the middle of an RT farty HOA, get out of it. But until you do, Then you can take airsoft guns down in your basement and set up ranges in your basement and shoot with them. They're the most flexible training tool that I've ever seen. And I think there needs to be more work done with tactical training with airsoft guns than is currently being done. I know somebody that's pretty much a bigwig in the tactical industry today. His dream is to own a school, something like Front Sight where people can come and train for everything from handguns up to you know full-on semi-automatic rifles and shotguns and tactical this and tactical that and do all of this training. And when he looks at the cost of it, he goes, I can't afford to do it. The insurance alone will eat me alive. And I'm like, why don't you rent to test the theory a warehouse somewhere, a burned-out old warehouse, set up a bunch of stuff like movie sets and do it with airsoft? Because it's not real. You can put 200 rounds in a... Like, you know, you, you can make it real. You can limit magazines to their actual capacity in real life. You can set up situations, everything from home invasion to force on force. It would be awesome. And I think somebody really needs to do that. I'm not talking, I know people are going to write me, oh, we do this and that in the war games. And all that. I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about professional trainers training professional scenarios. And I think we need more that are realistic. We don't need to be training four-on-four, force-on-force with semi-automatic rifles. Because the average civilian has no... If you want to do it, that's fine. I don't have anything against it. But it's not practical. But you're armed with a handgun. Somebody walks into a room full of 20 innocent people with a rifle and starts shooting. That's actually a scenario that just happened. Okay, that's what we should be training for. And Airsoft is the tool for that. And not the rigged game like they did on 2020, where they take a professional and a guy with no training, the professional's the, the shooter and, the, and the, the idiot that doesn't know anything about a gun is the person that's supposed to defend. They, they've never held a gun before in their life, but we just hand it to them. And they tell the professional who the person with the gun is in the room. What we should be doing is, guy walks in, safety gears on, starts shooting. Start shooting. And if he shoots you first, that drives home it could happen. That drives home it could happen. 
there's there's a real opportunity for airsoft training to be taken to a much higher level. When I did training with the with the Russian guys, the Sistema guys, and we we did firearms training, what we did we had you know a person being shot at and another person returning fire with airsoft pistols, and while you're trying to deal with the guy that's shooting at you, there's a Russian guy with a with a, a five gallon bucket full of tennis balls. You know, a six foot four, two hundred pound Russian guy that can throw a tennis ball like a, like a baseball pitcher, throwing tennis balls at your head, and you're not allowed to shoot him. You have to deal with the threat. Man, that amps it up. That makes it real. The, and this is practical training. This is the type of thing that can happen. The truth is, these types of scenarios generally last less than nine seconds. Nine seconds from initiation to termination. Nine seconds. And You can lose your life or you can save a life in those nine seconds. And that's why training is so important. Big thing in the end, lose the fear. Lose the fear of the gun itself. Seriously, it, it, it's irrational. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that a human being who will get into a multi-ton vehicle on a daily basis, drive with, let's be honest, thousands of people around them, many of them whom are idiots, who have no business, if you drive, you know there are people that have no business being on the road whatsoever. Okay? And you will do that every day with no real inherent fear, relying on something simple as a safety belt and an airbag to protect you. When if you get hit by a semi, it won't matter. And then we'll fear a gun when that gun would be under their control or the control of someone they trust so much that they lay down and sleep next to every night. If you, if you think about it that way, it is completely irrational. Now, it's hard to get past it for some people because, let's face it, the media has done such a good job of connotating gun equals danger. Gun equals danger. Again, Chainsaws are dangerous. Bandsaws are dangerous. Drills are dangerous. Working on electrical systems is dangerous. Keeping bees is dangerous. Technically speaking, the most dangerous animal on planet Earth is the honeybee. I Look the numbers up if you doubt me. And yet people keep bees. And you're not just dealing with a, you know, like the reason the bee is the most dangerous animal in the world is because due to the fact that it will sting, and some people are severely allergic, there's enough people stung every year that bees kill more than any other animal on the planet. But the beekeeper has a box of 60, 100,000, 200,000, a quarter million of these stinging insects, pulls the lid off it, takes them out, works with them, and maybe works with a thousand boxes in a month, and remains okay. And even though that person hopefully is not allergic to bees, if you get bit, stung, more accurately, by enough bees, Africanized, regular, doesn't matter, Italian bees, whatever, enough bee venom will kill any human being. And yet we don't have beekeepers dropping over every day. Why? They have proper training, they have proper procedures, And they have proper protocols. And in general, one doesn't become a beekeeper by ordering a couple bee boxes online, ordering safety gear online, and ordering bees, dumping them in the boxes and just figuring it out. They get training. They get help from other people. They at least do reading. 
and they learn to respect something that is dangerous, and they learn to have procedures and protocols and rules to deal with that thing so that it can do wonderful things for them, like make them lots of money in the case of beekeeping, and pollinate plants, and make sure that people can have food, and produce honey and wax and other great products, because they got past the fear. A gun is so much simpler when it comes down to it to handle safely than a beehive or, frankly, a chainsaw. I feel that I can bring a person up to a speed with a handgun in two good solid days of training where I will, in general, trust that person with a loaded gun in my presence after that if they've actually paid attention to me. I would probably want a week or more before you're running a chainsaw next to me if I don't know you already have the training and knowledge to run a chainsaw. You're more likely to hurt me with a chainsaw working with me than a gun. And, and that's just factual. You're more likely to hit me with the chain. You're more likely to hurt yourself, and now i got to deal with it. You're more likely to drop a tree on me. I mean, it, it's just the fact. You have to lose the fear because it's not a rational fear. And when you have any fear in your life that's irrational, it needs to be addressed. And as I close up today, that's what I want to talk about, addressing irrational fears. Let guns go for a minute. How many things in life are people afraid of today that are irrational? Right now we have people afraid they're going to be killed by a terrorist. This is an irrational fear. You're more likely to die in a car accident than be killed by a terrorist probably like a million times. It's irrational. You have to get your head wrapped around it. And you have to say to yourself, listen, it's actually more likely that I'll be at a store and some random criminal will rob the store, see me as a threat and shoot at me, than I'll be a victim of a mass terrorist shooting. Just statistically, criminal statistics from the FBI say this. But I'm not going to walk around and not go shopping because somebody might rob a store. I'm not going to sit here and be... Quake in fear because somebody might do a mass shooting. I'm not going to demand that the rights of others be infringed upon to, to settle my fear when my fear is irrational. And I'm not going to let that fear prevent me from taking the steps necessary to, God forbid one of these things occur, being able to look after myself and look after other people around me. And I'm going to accept the fact that I can't cover every base. That I can do everything right and I could still lose. And I'm still going to stand up. I'm still going to stand up. I know for a fact that the fact that I'm an armed citizen, if there is a situation where there is a lethal fight, even if the bad guy doesn't bring a gun, the bad guy brought a knife, the bad guy brought a bat, the bad guy brought the fact that he's 300 pounds and some kind of roid head, there's going to be a gun there. That already makes the situation more deadly because I have a gun. I accept that. I accept that I could go to a place someday, some crazy guy could walk into the place, start shooting people, I can do everything right, I can I can get the threat countered, I can shoot that guy, and another citizen or a cop that mistakes me for being another bad guy could shoot me. I'll take that risk because your life is worth it. My fellow citizen's life is worth taking that risk. My wife's life is worth taking that risk. My son's life is worth taking that risk. My grandson's life is worth that risk. And a perfect stranger who did nothing wrong except be in the wrong place at the wrong time, their life is worth that risk. 
Don't be irrational. Stand tall. Stand proud. Understand you have a right. Not because the Constitution says so. Because you are an individual human being born with sovereign rights as such. You have a right to be able to protect yourself. You have a right to be able to protect other innocents. And if you have enough in you, those rights lead you to a duty and a responsibility to do so. And duties and responsibilities are serious things. You can't use that as an excuse to just go out and grab a gun and strap it on your body without doing the things to legally comply and morally and ethically comply with the risks associated with it. You take the path. You take the path, not because anybody in government says you have to, but because as a responsible individual, that's what you do. If you didn't know how a chainsaw worked, you wouldn't order one from Amazon, fire it up and start cutting trees down without thinking. At least you shouldn't. You shouldn't take that path with a gun either. Get training. Get experience. Get mentors. But for God's sakes, man up, woman up, defend your property, defend your life, defend your family, Defend your fellow citizens, and if it ever comes down to it, defend yourself. As I end the show today, rather than my regular sign-off, I want to put out one last thing to what guns are really all about, in America anyway. They are not just tools for our defense and tools for our hunting. They are heritage. A heritage that has been maligned and attacked, and the number one way we can stop that attack and restore a culture of self-reliance to our country in regard to firearms is their responsible ownership and their valued ownership. It's one thing to own a gun that you went to the store and purchased. It's another thing to own a gun that was owned by your father or your grandfather or your grandmother or your uncle. And the number one thing we can do for families who are new to gun ownership that don't have that, that don't have granddaddy's gun, is let your gun become that. Think about your future generations. Raise children to not fear guns. Raise children to know how to defend themselves and others. Raise children to know. Raise children to know that it's their duty to defend those weaker than themselves. It's their responsibility to make sure that they can defend themselves. You want to fix bullying? Teach people to defend others, and maybe they'll stop attacking others. With that, I want you to listen to this song, and I want you to think about it. I want you to think about what it would mean for your great-grandchild to hold a gun someday and be connected to you through the annals of history with it, especially if maybe that was your own grandfather's gun. And that, that young person is now looking at seven generations of heritage and tradition and responsible ownership, and yes, the ability to defend oneself, one property, and others. I don't think they'd let anybody take it away. If you believe in the Second Amendment of the Constitution, if you believe in the inherent right of individuals to self-defense and protection, if you believe in the individual right to bear arms, preserve that tradition and pass it down. It sits above the mantle on a couple rusty nails. Ain't worth a lot of money And it damn sure ain't for sale 
Good Lord only knows all the stories it could tell when granddaddy's gone. He bought a new out of the Sears Roebuck catalog. It shot a many shells over the back of an old bird dog. It backed the burglar down when Grandma took the safety off of Granddaddy's gun. Just an old double barrel twelve. Stock is cracked and kicks like hell. Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one. When I put it to my shoulder It comes like a woman, son It's all how you hold her Taught me a whole lot more Than how to hunt One of these days I'll pass it on to my grandson My granddaddy's gone But he handed it to me Turn 13 With a half shot box of shells And a gift to keep it clean I keep a picture in the case Of that sweet old man and me Granddaddy's gone It's just an old double barrel 12 Stock is cracked and it kicks like hell Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder A gun's like a woman, son, it's all how you hold her Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt One of these days I'll pass it on to my grandson My granddaddy's gone Sale. 